Well, welcome this morning. I want to encourage you, if you don't mind, just turning. We're in Acts chapter 25 this morning, uh, continuing to work our way through this wonderful book, an account of the early church. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one from the chair in front of you or underneath your seat. As you're turning there, I wanted to share just an experience I had in the last uh, couple of weeks. They, in the Kids Blast, they have some really good, interesting conversations with the kids. And one of the, the questions that was asked of our children uh, in the last couple of weeks was, what is one thing that your parents consistently repeat? What is one thing that you've heard your parents say a bunch of times? So my youngest, uh, Sienna, there's a picture of her there. She's 10 years old. She's the only one still in Kids Blast. And I was wondering, what is it that she said, I say consistently? Wouldn't you wonder that from your children? What is the, the mark or impact you're having on your children? I was thinking for sure it would be uh, spiritual in nature. The, uh, the, ju- just uh, just t- teasing. But the one thing that she, when she had the opportunity to share, the one thing she remembered dad saying the most consistently is this. Life's not fair, get used to it. <laughs> Out of all the things that my children are going to remember, the legacy, the impact that I'm going to have, that's what she's going to remember, that life's not fair, get used to it. And so this morning, our title of our sermon is Life's Not Fair. And the reason that's uh, brought up is because so often I like to make sure that my kids aren't missing out on truths that they should be aware of to help navigate through this life. Even unpopular truths like that one, that life's not always going to go easy. It's not always going to go smoothly. In fact, sometimes it even plays out in ways that you're like, that doesn't seem fair at all. I was reading this uh, last week, this book by a secular author called Dumbing Down Kids and by Charles Sykes, uh, wrote through the list of different things that kids today won't learn in school. Would you like to hear that list? Number one on that list, guess what it is? Life's not fair, get used to it. Yes! (laughs) Making sure my children are well equipped. The second one, the world does not care about your self-esteem. That's important to understand. Number three, you won't make 60000 coming out of high school. That's important to understand. Number four, if you think your teacher is tough, wait till you get a boss. Number five, this is important for children to understand. If you mess up, it is not your parents' fault. Along that same line, the if you mess up idea, before you were born, your parents were, as bo- were not as boring as they are now. They got that way from paying your bills and listening to how cool you are. Number seven, your school and sports teams may have done away with winners and losers, but life has not. Number eight, life is not divided into semesters with your summers off. Number nine, television isn't real life. People actually leave coffee shops and go to work. Number 10, this is important to understand as well. Be nice to nerds because someday you'll work for one. All of those things are important principles that are not taught in our schools. And 
I don't know if you're like me, but I would rather hear things like they are. Any other straight shooters in the room? Wouldn't you rather not have things packaged and presented all nice? I'd rather just hear just, just the way it is, right, Vicki Klopp? Like that's the, the appreciate that about certain people that they say it just like it is. You don't wonder what they're thinking or what they're feeling. And what, what you get there is Paul is right now, man, he is in graduate level program of the school of hard knocks and learning some things that maybe are unpopular truths all falling under the umbrella of life's not fair. Let me pray before we dive into this section. Lord Jesus, we invite you to speak to us through this text. We believe every time we open your word and study it, you have a word from us. You promise us that. I pray that we'd be attentive enough to hear from you this morning. We invite your Holy Spirit even into this room to speak into our lives and maybe to dispel some myths that we're living under. Things that can leave us vulnerable to disappointment, disillusionment, and being jaded. God, I pray that you teach us and remind us of these truths this morning. And we invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So chapter 25, we're starting with this first uh, just encouraging principle Time doesn't guarantee that things will get easier. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Start verse one. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Stop and give a little explanation of what's going on there. If you remember, we're about two years into this debacle of a court process for the Apostle Paul. And I don't know if you remember as a kid, anybody playing the game Hot Potato. Anybody remember that that game where you have the ball? And uh, John, we're going to try you with it. Keep it going, keep it going. Don't, don't catch it. No, the, you got to keep it going, going, going. You get the idea was this, that you wouldn't let it. There, there we're just throwing it at each other. <laughs> So I guess I'm the only one that played hot potato. The idea is this. You keep it juggling because you don't want it to land in your hands where you get burned, right? You keep it moving, moving, moving. Well, pretty much Paul has been a political hot potato for the last two years. The last two years, they keep trying to figure out. They went from the, the Jewish uh, folks there. They're trying to juggle, and they goes over to the Roman folks, back to the Jewish folks, back to the Romans, and, and, and this whole chaos has been just littered with all kinds of unfairness, if you will. Well, now he's landed uh, to kind of a pretty high level in the judicial process, to a, a governor, if you will. He's been underneath a governor by the name of Felix, not a cat, but the last couple of weeks, Felix has been the one deciding his fate. But if you remember, Felix was a procrastinator and postponed dealing with the situation and left Paul sitting in prison for two years. What a bummer when you're like, man, they can't even decide what to do with me. Now we have a new character introduced into the story, and it's a new governor. His name is Festus. Now, when you hear that name, doesn't that sound like a skin condition? You know, like I, I've got this new cream. It's really helping with my Festus. But anyway, so this idea, 
Festus, this guy, this new governor, if you will, is in control. And the reason he's in authority is because Felix had actually blown it. He had really messed up. In fact, because of him being uh, accusations against him for cruel misuse of force and subduing a riot in Caesarea, they had brought, the Jews had brought these different accusations against him to the emperor who relieved Felix of his duty and put Festus, a more responsible leader, in place. Are you tracking with me? So Festus arrives on the scene, and his number one first priority is to try to appease the Jewish folks and relieve any potential of revolt. Because as we mentioned last week, the hope is just keep people happy, keep them paying taxes, and everything works out fine. So Festus, in his new job, is not like Felix the procrastinator. Literally, it says in the first three days, where does it say that he's at? He's in Jerusalem, trying to schmooze and try to make things, kind of cover things up in a sense and try to make peace with the folks there. Now, it's been two years since they've come up with accusations against Paul. You would think that over two years, maybe things would tone down a little bit. Maybe the tension between the Jewish leaders of that time and against Paul would kind of dissipate and kind of, kind of calm down. You notice, what is the very first thing that they do with this governor? The very first request, man, bring Paul down here for a court case because we have some claims against him. And you see there in the text, because they're intending when he's in route to what? Kill him. So have things over time gotten any better? Has time passing made things any easier? How often have you heard from somebody with a well-intention come up to you and be like, you know what, the more time passes, things are just, it's going to get easier. You know, it's going to get, things are going to get better with time. Anybody ever heard that advice? Anyone ever given that advice? No harm, no foul. But here in this scenario, here's the truth of the situation that's nowhere to be found in scripture. It's not biblical. Things don't always get easier with time. In fact, sometimes things get even worse, right? Anybody notice that over time? Sometimes things, you're like, man, they were really bad back then, but man, it's snowballed and it's even worse now. So we have to be so cautious of what advice or what counsel we're giving people. And this has been all the way from the beginning. Since Paul was first converted, they've had a mark on his life. Things haven't gotten easier on his trip to Damascus. You remember he was headed there to find and seek out any Jewish believers to bring them back to prison. When he arrives in Damascus, after he was there just a short period of time, this is what we're told, Acts 9.23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Things hadn't changed. Time hadn't made things easier. It hadn't gotten any better for Paul. The same idea was true then is still true now. They wanted to murder him. And you notice their lack of creativity. Remember a couple of sections back where in the, their, their game plan was what? We're going to ambush him and then kill him. Two years have passed. Guess what the plan is? We're going to ambush him and we're going to kill him. So not a lot has changed, but the good news, if there is a little glimpse in there, is we still, despite this truth that time doesn't guarantee things get better, we also have a God that is in the business of rescuing. Verse 4, Festus 
replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. We'll stop there. What you notice what's happened is Festus has declined their request. What has he proposed instead? He said, why don't you guys come up to Caesarea? And if you have charges against him, we can deal with it there. Festus, I'm guessing as the new guy, didn't know that there was any plot or plan to kill him behind the scenes. He, he wasn't thinking along those lines, I imagine. But here's the thing, the important lesson to understand is that God uses people, whether they realize it or not, to, as a tool of rescue all the time. This is good news. God uses people, brings thoughts into their mind, proposes things that they don't even realize that they're acting out as a, as a pawn, if you will, in God's overall redemptive plan in people's lives. And so we so often will be like, man, that just seems like such a coincidence. Here's the thing as we're dispelling things here this morning. There's no such thing as coincidences. You're like, I don't know about that. You guys can talk about it over lunch. But here's the reason I say that. We have this idea that there's kind of two th ways that the world operates. You have a section of your life that God is involved in, and then you have a section of your life that God is uninvolved and unconcerned. What I would suggest and what scripture points to all over the place is that there's no divide. There's no divide. God, we're not autonomous beings like we have this existence. Yeah, this is the part of my life that God's not really uh, that concerned with or involved with. Guess what? Scripture tells us that in him we live and move and have our being. There's no part of your life that's independent of God. His interest, his involvement, even put your finger on your pulse right now. Guess who's keeping your heart beating? Who's causing your lungs to suck in? It's not your conscience ability to remember to do those things. God sustains life. He's very involved. And if something good happens, guess who gets the glory? Guess who gets the glory? James 1:17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's the source of it all. And some of you might be saying, yeah, well, you mentioned the good stuff. What about the bad stuff? Here's what I would suggest, another theme that we see in Scripture. He causes the good and allows the bad. He causes the good and allows the bad. And he uses both of them in this effort to shape you to be more and more like Jesus Christ. He uses both of those as tools in his arsenal. I love this quote by Elizabeth Elliot. I don't know if you've seen it before. God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. If you know anything about Elizabeth Elliot, she's the widow of uh, Jim Elliot, who was a missionary to the Aka Indians. He was murdered cruelly by the people he was trying to reach. And you know what she ended up doing with her life? Continuing those efforts reaching out to the same people group. She knew a little something about difficulty and challenge in her life, and that even though things aren't necessarily fair, God is sovereign over all of it and uses all of it with our best interest in mind. So here's the, the, the second truth. There's no such thing as coincidence. Third one we're going to see in the text, verse 6, people lie to achieve their goals. 
that might get an amen in this room. After he stayed, verse 6, after he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So you notice here, he's only about 14 days into his new role as governor, and he's wanting to clean up any of the mess left behind from Felix, his, his, the person he was succeeding. And he's there, and he's bringing before him. This is a formal deal here. When it says that he's sitting at the tribunal, he's literally, this is a, this is a court scenario. This is where a decision could be made where Paul's life is either ended or continued. So a lot is, is at stake here. And here it says that when they had the opportunity, when he arrived, the Jews had come down and they brought many charges against him, serious charges against him. Think about that, the things that were brought up against him. But it says the interesting thing at the end there. It says, but with those, it says serious charges against him that they could not prove. Why do you think they couldn't prove these things against him? Because they weren't true. There was no basis. There was, there was no facts. There was no evidence. There's nothing to lay out in the, the court case. And so they're left with just basically lies about Paul that were completely inaccurate. So often I stumble upon people that have been lied to in life, and I feel like they're just completely shocked. They're just like, I can't believe they would lie to me. How could they do that? That's so shocking to so many people. Well, not after this morning, because I'm going to explain to you something, that we're in a world that people primarily use lies as a tool to accomplish their agenda. When you're a self-god and you're living primarily for yourself, you're not really concerned about others or their feelings or what they're going through, lies are an awesome tool. Think about it for a second. It's the way easier route. You could just make up stuff. Fiction is way easier to come up with than truth. And, and you just come up with these lies, and that's exactly what they're saying. We have an agenda. We must kill Paul. How do we accomplish that agenda? Let's make up bad stuff about him in a court scenario where his life is on the line. For us to understand this, that people that we're surrounded with have no problem lying about you or about other things. Anybody uh, notice this in your, your life already? Anybody find, find that out the hard way maybe at some point? I found it interesting uh, some years back before moving from Chicago. I had a guy that I knew in Chicago that uh, wanted to break into a new field of business. He had been in sales, but he uh, was wanting to break into medical equipment sales, but he had one single problem. He hadn't ever done anything related to medical equipment sales. So you know what he did? On his resume, he wrote in, created a job that he had not worked at, but he added on his resume of working in the medical field. And guess what? For his reference, he put his girlfriend's name. So when they called to get a reference, guess, guess who they talked to? His girlfriend gave him a glowing review. He's an excellent in this field. And guess where that guy still works today? In the medical field, selling medical equipment all based on that. Doesn't that make you feel about your uh, medical uh, care now? Uh, but, but here's the, the idea and the principle that I leave you with, is this leaved, even though it was untrue, it pushed Festus into a corner because he had this major dilemma. Do I antagonize the same people I was sent to try to calm down? 
the same people that I'm trying to kind of make peace with. I'm trying to console. So that's where Festus is at, verse 8. And we see Paul right in the middle of this. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Yeah, that's a good idea. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. See how this plays out. So Paul finally has an opportunity to speak. And since there wasn't any proof against him, it's literally his word against theirs. Have you ever been in one of those scenarios where it's a he said, she said, and you're like, there's no proof. I don't know what to do with this. He's pushed Festus into this situation where he's having to decide between they said this, they said this, but I want to do these guys a favor. So he proposes this idea, do you want to go before the Jews and get some justice there? Paul must have been like, are you kidding? Have you not seen how much they hate me and want to kill me? So I'm not going to do that. As a Roman citizen, he's saying, in essence, I'm standing before the right person who should be deciding this. And the right person who should be deciding this, you know the truth. You see, he's kind of calling him out. You know the truth. You know that I am innocent. And here's the next tough lesson. You already see it on the screen there. Is that innocence doesn't guarantee freedom. Innocence doesn't guarantee freedom. There's plenty of innocent people that have been in chains, that have been imprisoned, that are uh, still to this day. Think about scripture and how often in scripture there's story after story of people that were innocent, but yet they're in some kind of a scenario that you're like, man, they didn't deserve that. They didn't do anything to deserve that. Still today, I was reading a story this last week that Stephanie had passed on of a gentleman by the name of Gerald Manning. I don't know if you heard this story. It was just this past spring in June. He was convicted in 1978 of murder and rape of a woman by the name of Vonda Harris, a 23-year-old woman. Then just this past spring, with the kind of advancement in DNA technology, he was finally proven to be completely innocent. And after 41 years in prison, he was set free. Can you imagine? For your, basically, your, your entire life, majority of it, left in prison. thought it was interesting how he responded. Here's a quote from me. He says, I'm not mad. I think things happen. You just have to move on, Manning said. I'm not the first, and I ain't going to be the last, and I ain't bitter at nobody. This idea, this picture of, hey, I'm not the first innocent person to be unjustly put in prison. I'm not the first innocent person to be mistreated. And here's the reality for us today is, man, just because you're innocent doesn't mean that things are going to play out fair in your life. Oh, man, Pastor Scott, is there any good news that you have for us this morning? Here's the flip side of that coin. When I say, when I say fair and unfair, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't want things to be fair. If we actually got what was fair, we're in big trouble. Think about Paul, for instance. Paul was on his way to Damascus to seek out Jewish believers, to bring back an arrest and imprison and potentially even kill. Upon that uh, trip, that's when God came with amazing 
grace in Paul's life. He didn't get what he deserved. 1 Timothy 1.13, he talks about it. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Mercy is getting something that you don't deserve. It's unfair, and that's not such a bad thing if you think about it. So before we're too quick to scream for, wait, I want things to be fair, you're like, uh, I'm kind of depending on things not to be fair. It wasn't fair that Jesus Christ, who was perfectly innocent, hung on a cruel Roman cross and was executed for my sins, for my mistakes. That's not fair. So before we're too quick to yell about unfairness, uh, innocence doesn't guarantee freedom. Here's the good side of it. Guilt doesn't guarantee penalty. Guilt doesn't guarantee penalty either. So in that unfairness conversation, let's make sure we discuss both sides of it. Continuing on how this plays out for Paul, verse 11. If then I'm a wrongdoer, this is Paul talking, and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not, do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. We'll stop with a little explanation there. Basically, Paul's pointing out that he's not there. He's not this, just there trying to avoid penalty. He's saying, if I've done something against the law, I have no problem paying the consequences of that. In fact, he's saying, I'm even okay with dying. I wonder at this point in Paul's life if he's like, ah, actually, that's kind of the preferred thing. Uh, but, but at this stage of the game, he's saying, but since that's not an option, since I, since I am innocent and I'm not getting justice here, let's just keep on moving it up the ladder of their justice system. He hasn't found it at any tier yet. And he's like, man, we're, okay, I guess we'll go to the next tier. Okay, I guess I'll, we'll go to the next tier. And at this point, every Roman citizen, I find this interesting, every Roman citizen had the ability to appeal to Caesar. What that means is kind of like today's Supreme Court. You can raise things up if you have enough cash and make it all the way to the Supreme Court. But in that day and age, a, a Roman citizen could say, you know what, I want my case to be tried by Caesar. So here's the, here's the thing with that, though. It was a little bit of a crazy request. Let me explain why. Because what was decided by Caesar, there was no appeal to that anymore. And here's the problem with Caesar. Caesar was a little crazy. His name was Nero. And Nero was not actually known for any rational decision choices or processes. In fact, if he had a bad day, it was not going to go well for you in court. If he had indigestion, it was a bad day in court. So here, Paul, everybody in the room was kind of like, really? <laughs> you, 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 you want to go to Caesar, the guy that ends up being one of the, the greatest persecutors of Christians of all times? That's who you want to stand before Here's the thing, Paul understood, and this is the thing that we can maybe look past, Paul understood that Caesar was not driving the ship. He understood something, and it's important for each one of us to understand. Here's one of the things I grew up with. I don't know if you've ever ridden a tandem bike. Have you guys ever ridden a tandem bike? When I was growing up, my parents, even in their 50s, 60s, uh, and I think they still have one now, 70s, still rock 
the tandem bike. Anybody ever ride the, the tandem bike before? Here's a picture of him. He kind of got that idea when Adrian and I first got married. I'd seen that example set for me. So one of our very earliest purchases was a tandem bike. We discovered, though, that tandem bikes are uh, shaping in one's marriage. Anybody realize that? Anybody ever try to ride a tandem bike with your spouse? Why is it challenging? Why is it difficult? Because the person that's in the back, what's the problem? Cannot steer, right? And so I one time made the decision. I'm like, honey, you go ahead and ride. I'll just ride on the back. The, the whole time I'm in the back, it was complete and utter panic. It was kind of like, these bars don't work. Like, what do I do? But my wife somehow over the years has gotten to the place where she actually kind of likes it. She likes sitting in the back. When you ask her about it, she's like, yeah, I've, I've kind of gotten to know the driver and gotten to know. And over time, I've realized I can sit in the back and not even pedal and uh, just look around <laughs> Just, just look around and uh, just enjoy the view, just enjoy pause and enjoy the scenery and just soak it all in. I just have this picture for whatever reason, and I don't know if it's a crazy one. I kind of picture Paul at this stage of the game, he's kind of doing the tandem bike thing. He's like, he's like, I'm in the back, look, no legs, you know, like I'm not even pedaling, this is awesome. He's like, I'm holding on, I'm just going along for the ride at this stage. I'm kind of excited to see what's going to happen next because why? He knows who's actually steering that bike. And here's the thing with the Christian life, and some of us are just like, Scott, do you have any bit of hope anywhere in this message? The only bit of hope I have for us in this message is that the very last words of Jesus Christ that we, that we heard from in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's the one hope. You are on a tandem bike ride with somebody till the very end, and guess what? You couldn't pick a better bike partner to ride with. Jesus Christ, the one that designed all of this, the one that created things, the, the one that has the ability to, to alter things, the one that knows the path before he gets there, the one that can recreate the path, the one that, that has already all of this planned out, played out, and it's not a matter of what's next. It's going to happen the way he wants it to happen, whether the world around us realizes it or not. Think about this for a moment. Where was the one place that Paul and his missionary efforts, where was the one place that he longed to make it to? Where was he trying to go to? Rome. Guess what? He just got an all expense paid trip to the city of Rome. And Festus is just like, sure. He's like, I'll let you go to Rome. And Paul's like, nice. We secured it. We're going to Rome. You see what's happening here is God's sovereign over all of this. Even when it doesn't seem fair, even when you don't get a fair shake, even when justice isn't served, even when things don't go like you've expected, even when people lie to you, you're like, that's all right. Because even though it's unfair, God is faithful through all of it. That's my one little glimmer of hope at the end of this message. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word and this adventure that Paul has been on with so many teachable moments. God, we ask that you would meet us even in this. Some people, this isn't just a talk. This is stuff they're living out right now. A lack of justice, lack of fairness. God, I pray that you would draw near to that person even in this room this morning. 
that they would sense your presence, they'd sense that you're in control, that you're driving all of this. And even though, even though we don't see it right now, there is a day coming where there will be justice, will you, where you will reign appropriately on your throne, where every knee will bow, every tongue confess, where this all gets made right. God, we thank you for that reality, and that's the hope that we cling to in all of this. Thank you for clarifying expectations for us this morning. In Jesus Christ's name, 